Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Well, thank you Emmanuel and the team this morning leading us so capably in worship in song. Isn't it great also to have baptisms? We normally tag them on at the end of a service and today we had it during the service and I really think that was encouraging just to see God at work and we have a young generation emerging. Uh, emerged would be a better word, uh, serving God and uh, evidence of God continuing to do His work. Well, I have over these past weeks uh, been, been involved in teaching from the Psalms and uh, following a short series that I've entitled Living in a World Seemingly Gone Mad. And I did in the first week try from Psalm 1 to show you in fact that we have the voice of God and uh, we can listen to Him. And then in the second week from Psalm 2, we looked at the superpowers and affirming the reality that God sovereignly reigns and every single leader uh, will ultimately give an account to Him. And so today we're going to move on to Psalm 51. And I've entitled this uh, psalm, My Lifestyle Choices. My Lifestyle Choices. So do turn in your Bible, follow with me please, as we read the entire psalm together. Find right at the heading of the psalm to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in the right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Bulls will be offered 
on your altar. Just so far, uh, the reading of God's word. Let's just pray together. Lord, we have repeatedly come before your throne of grace this morning and demonstrating, Lord, our dependence on you. And in all that we do, Lord, in public ministry, in private life, we stand in need of your grace and your spirit, your Holy Spirit at work in us. And Lord, as we come to this topic this morning, I pray that we would be, Lord, led in pathways where we do not grieve your spirit, but Lord, that we be filled with your spirit, seeking to honor you, follow you, living lives worthy of the calling you have called us to. And so I commit myself, the words of my mouth, meditation of our hearts together. In Jesus' name, amen. So before Central Baptist, I served at a church in Peter Maritzburg, KwaZulu-Natal. It was during that first pastorate, my wife and I made some good friends with a couple that joined our church. They got very involved almost from the outset uh, in the ministry, attended the home group that we led, I led from our home. Uh, husband got involved, very involved in the music ministry and uh, the wife involved in hospitality and ladies' ministry. We were house friends. And suddenly, out of the blue, one day they announced to us they had decided and were imminently moving, relocating to Cape Town. And then some months later, we were on holiday in Cape Town and we made contact to get together with his family for a bride. So while we were standing at the fire cooking the meat as the men do and the women in the kitchen, it seems to be the practice, my friend blot, blurted out the shocking news that he was HIV positive. I was devastated to hear this. I immediately assumed, feeling sorry for him, that it was because of some contaminated blood in some kind of medical procedure that he had contracted the virus. Only to hear him tell me that he was gay. Having had countless sexual encounters with other men. He went on to tell me that even while serving with us in Peter Maritzburg, that he was living and had been living a double life. Now, here's the phrase that I will never forget a phrase that I want to elaborate on in this message this morning. Living a double life, following the impulses of his desires doing what he wanted to do because he felt like doing it and didn't think it mattered because nobody knew. And so that prompts me to ask a question this morning that I believe needs answering repeatedly, but perhaps even more so in 2023. Are we as people, don't forget people made in the image of God, are we to act on any and every impulse just following the desires of our heart at any time, at any place? Very important question to ask. In fact, we can get more specific, or I will get more specific. Does it matter, does it matter, and we are dealing with, with sexual issues this morning, does it matter what sexual lifestyle choices you make? We being sexual beings. Does it matter that you commit adultery? Does it matter that you get involved in some kind of same-sex relationship? Does it matter that you get involved in 
transgender role switching, especially if nobody knows about it. See, the important question we have to answer, does it matter that I sin? Does it matter that you or I would break the commands of God when the world around us approves of a particular lifestyle or sexual practice? Well, we turn to this passage, and the context of this passage is important. Uh, King David sinned. Statement of fact at the beginning of this message this morning. He indulged in the impulses of his sinful nature by having an affair. Bathsheba was married to a man by the name of Uriah. It seemed reasonable and uh, fair to him uh, that he took some time out to relax. He was obviously king of the land. Uh, They uh, had been conquering and had been conquering. And at this particular point in time, he had chosen not to accompany his troops on their usual springtime maneuvers. He stayed at home in the comfortable place of Jerusalem. And it was on a particular day when he saw Bathsheba. The Bible tells us that she was a very beautiful woman, appealing, attractive, nice to look at. Unfortunately, she was married to one of David's officers, by the na- a man by the name of Uriah the Hittite. Well, David in his mind probably reasoned, rationalized, planning a, a good time with Bathsheba. Husband was away, uh, and it would be nothing more perhaps in his mind than a one-night experience or a one-night fling. didn't really matter because the husband is away. He wouldn't have to know about it. And in his absence, nobody need to know. Unfortunately for King David, Bathsheba became pregnant. <laughs> now he's got the problem. With Uriah away with his regiment, the father's not around. An embarrassing scandal was inevitable. So David needed to make a plan to keep his nose clean, believing, as many of us often believe, that sin doesn't matter if you can hide it. My first point this morning. You see, if he was fast and slick with his strategic plan to hide his sin, to cover his sin that he committed with Bathsheba, all would be well and it would not matter that he had sinned. And so he came up with a plan. Recall Uriah from duty, from fighting at the battle line, under some feeble pretext that he wanted an update from what was happening in battle. Get Uriah to sleep at home with his wife that particular night. Make sure Uriah was safely out at a campaign nine months later, and then maybe even falsify the birth certificate. Man, he had a scheme, he had a plan, this was going to work. But Uriah did not cooperate. He was stubborn, stubborn as a mule, as David would have thought. Maybe he smelt a rat, I don't know. Maybe he was genuinely noble, uh, making the particular comment that he'd rather sleep in the servant quarters while the other men were on the field and not spend time with his wife. And so for for days, David, three days, uh, David made every attempt, whining and dining, this poor fellow, but without success. David had to accept that the first scheme, strategic scheme to cover his sin up, did not succeed. And so he came up with another, more desperate plan. 
instructing Joab, the officer commanding, to so engineer events on the battlefield in such a way that Uriah was on the front line so that he would be killed in battle, conveniently killed in battle. And then after a suitable funeral, perhaps with full military honors, uh, he would marry the poor grieving widow, adopt her unborn child, and become prince in the royal line. And the plan worked. Seemed to be successful. Uriah died, David married Bathsheba, David adopted the child, and David believed that everything was done and dusted. He had covered his tracks very skillfully and carefully. Nobody knew, and after all, it's true, he would have reasoned to himself, all of us have some kind of skeleton in our cupboard, hidden away that nobody knows about. It had happened, it was over, and it could be forgotten. Let's move on and live our lives. It's one thing to think about David, but we must think of our own life situation. Do you ever, I ask myself, do I ever follow that kind of reasoning? We sin, we cover our tracks. Sometimes it's necessary to tell some half-truths, put us in a good light. Maybe strategically do some plotting and scheming and manipulating so that we can absolve ourselves in the eyes of others of any kind of wrongdoing. Which brings me back to the question, does it matter? Does it matter that you have sinned as long as you can hide it from everyone else? And so the answer is simple. You know the answer, I'm sure, from the passage. If the truth be told, it is true that we can hide our sin from other people. We can do so. It is also true that we can get pats on the back or even encouragement from the world around us that what we're doing is okay because the world thinks it's acceptable and morality can be modified. We can, in the opinion of those around us, look squeaky clean. Does that happen among us here at Central Baptist Church? I think it does. I think it does because we're a big group of people. Probably more often that we want to admit and, and, and I place myself in uh, firing line. I know I sin. And I know you sin. And nobody knows. Often nobody knows and nobody's hurt and, and nobody's the wiser. And I keep looking like a saint and you keep looking like a saint and, and we proved it doesn't matter that we sin. But actually, folk, it doesn't end there. David discovered that sin cannot be swept under the carpet. Very importantly, secondly, from this passage this morning, we see that sin does matter because God knows. Sin does matter because God knows. You see, even if society approves, even though the elite in our academic institutions are modifying the moral fabric of our society today, and even if nobody knows about it, God knows. God knows. <laughs> we can manage to carry on with some kind of hypocrisy as David did. We can go through the motions of being a believer, going to church and doing ministry and saying our prayers and doing our job in reading the Bible. But the corpse remains, rotting away in the cupboard. Sooner or later, the stench 
will seep through the cracks and start to choke you. Very important lesson that we ought to remember from this very familiar passage this morning. You and I cannot hide our sin from God. Cannot cover up our guilt and sin no matter how hard we try and even if we succeed amongst those who are our peers. There is nothing hidden from God. God is all-knowing. God is everywhere present. God knows our every thought, our every motive, our every action. Read Psalm 139 and it will sober you up in your thinking and living. And David eventually learned that lesson. And he learned the lesson, again, a story that, that is quite, uh, I think, uh, penetrating through the preacher named Nathan. Nathan paid him a visit one day, confronted him with his sin. Remember telling him, telling David a parable and... Uh, Revealing that all along, God knew. Nothing can be hidden from God. God knew what he had done all along with his sick scheming that followed his selfishness and sinful deeds. And then what follows is we have Psalm 51 as a poem written in the wake of that very humiliating and convicting experience that David had with the prophet. And so, if you or I are going to deal with guilt successfully, dear friends, it cannot be covered up. It cannot be hidden from God. You and I, like David, have to deal with the skeletons in our cupboard. We have to have the humble guts. And here's the good news, my third point. Sin does matter, but it can be resolved. There's a solution. I am puzzled, longer I am in ministry, more and more puzzled why we Christians spend so much time and so much effort pretending we are squeaky clean. Are we? Are you? Am I? The scriptures are so clear. As it is written, none is righteous, no one. There's a crack and there's a blind spot and, 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 and you have a problem that sometimes you're not aware of. I have a problem and, and we fail and, and we, we, we grieve the heart of God and, and we understand, we know so well from Sunday school, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's just a fact of life outside the church and inside the church. Now I said in the earlier service this morning, please don't quote me out of context now. I confessed, I'm ashamed to say to Carol some years ago that I caught myself wishing somebody dead. I'm the pastor of the church. Ever done that? I confess, I struggle with envy. When I drive down Graham Road on a Sunday morning or up Graham Road and I see the Porsches and the Ferraris Man, there's something in my stomach that turns. Why not me? Isn't it true that we struggle, all of us, even if we're honest with racism, stirs within us, opportunities happen and we justify it. We're sinful people. 
There was an elder in this church. I've shared this with you and I'll share it with you again and again. An elder in this church some years ago, he's now passed away. He taught me a very valuable lesson that I keep forgetting and I need to keep learning. He said to me, if anybody points a finger at you, accusing you of something sinful, just be glad that's all they know about you. Isn't that true? You see, folk, it's better to admit the truth, face up to the reality of our struggle with sin and guilt before God. So how do we do that? How do we do that as we glean from David's experience as as God has preserved this particular passage for us? I think the first practical issue, uh, directive that, that I see here is we do so by being honest with ourselves. Being honest with yourself. I hear people tell me they've never sinned. I hear people telling me that they've never been a racist. I hear people tell tell me that they've never had an argument in their marriage. I don't believe you. Be honest with yourself. David was honest eventually with himself in verse 3. I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. David had tried to cover it up, but now he learned that he needed to take a deeper look, understanding that God knows anyway, God knows, take a deep look into his own heart and face up to the truth. And that it's a process that involves the work of the Spirit and the Word of God, and it brings about, it ought to bring about humble, honest self-scrutiny. You need that, I need that, when we come to the Lord's table, but not only then, every day we need to be considering in the light of, search my heart, O God. You see, our problem is that there are other useless options that seem so appealing, so attractive. Like David, there are what I've called here scheming excuses. It's the age-old practice of Passing the buck onto someone else. Man, Bathsheba, why was she laying bathing on the, on the deck? Should have had a towel or gown. You know, pass the buck, man. It was her fault. She tempted me. Like Adam blaming Eve and, and Eve blaming Adam and, and, and uh, at least Eve blaming the serpent. And if you have any children, if you have any experience with raising children, from the earliest age you will discover that before they can even speak properly, they're making excuses and blaming somebody else. So David, did he rationalize his sin? I'm sure he did. He probably blamed Bathsheba, as I've already said. Why did she fall pregnant, man, the stupid woman? I've heard men say that. It was Uriah that was so stupid. Why didn't he just cooperate and sleep with his jolly wife? We like to of excuses. Sadly, David also was guilty before this conviction of what I'm calling self-righteousness. David's initial response to Nathan. Read the passage. It cuts my heart every time I read that passage. David's anger, 2 Samuel chapter 12 verse 5, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And so he so easily judged the person in the parable. And then Nathan turns to him and says, you're the man. So quick, so quick. 
quick to pass judgment on others, but I'm so blind to my own failings. Thirdly, I've called it suppression. Through the course of Psalm 51, you will find some terminology, some language there where David speaks, for example, in verse 8, the bones you have broken. No, his bones were not physically broken. He just felt crushed. This is poetry. He feels, he feels like there's a heavy burden pushing him down. And so no matter how well he could pretend in public, no matter the fact that he thinks he was successful in hiding this particular sin, <laughs> when he put his head on the pillow at night, he could not hide from himself. His conscience pricked it, pricked him, suffered the private emotional pain that's, that when one suppresses guilt, comes about. Anxiety, depression, aches and pains, ulcers, hypertension. One of the hardest experiences I've had in the ministry was a bedside confession of a man with his wife present. She was on the one side of the bed, I was on the other side of the bed, and he was critically ill. This is what he said. I once visited a prostitute, and I feel I need to tell you. Closed his eyes and he died. Isn't that terrible? I don't know what to do. This thing had been plaguing this man for years. Never having resolved the issue, never, never having dealt with the issue that he had betrayed his wife. And in the closing seconds of his life, he tells her, and they can have no further conversation. You see, inwardly, David also was a mess. But the insight of godly wisdom that comes from Nathan, he's able to get to the place where we ought to get to again and again. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. God, you, you're holy. <laughs> I can't escape the reality of your morality and your righteousness. And so the excuses and the self-righteousness and the suppression must give way to confession. Confession. You and I are having to face up to the reality of our guilt and own it. And how do we do that? Well, by personally dealing with God. Personal dealings with God about guilt, verse 4, against you, you only, speaking to God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment? God, you're right to condemn me. God, you're right to judge me. But, but we say, but hang on a minute. The sin was against, against Bathsheba. The sin was against Uriah. Primarily against God. Ultimately, in the final analysis, his sin was against God. And we will never come to terms with our guilt until we have personal dealings with the God that we have offended and grieved. You see, for guilt is objective and real. It stands between us, sinful people, and a holy God, our creator God. God is a moral being. God is a holy judge. And so it's not just a question of contravening social convention. It's not a question of disobeying parents who have overprotective schemes. It's about offending God. It's about grieving the Spirit. And we have to face up to the fact that when we sin, 
God is angry. So David goes on by pleading to God for mercy. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. In the Old Testament, hyssop was something that the priest used to symbolize the purification of a leper. A leper was somebody who had a disease that was cast out from society. So when the leper was cleansed, there was a prescribed ceremony that he could be declared clean and then be sent back into that community. And so what David is saying here is he feels the defilement, the dirtiness of his sin like leprosy. He longs for healing. He longs to be clean. He longs to be rehabilitated. Just like that rehabilitated or the cleansed leper. So that he could be sent back into community in fellowship with people, in fellowship with God. But David is under no illusion how radical the necessary therapy must be. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Sin requires spiritual work to be done on the inside of our being. David is asking for a miracle. He's asking for the ongoing work of supernatural intervention because he understands his heart is hard. His heart has been hard. There needs to be heart surgery. There's no superficial band-aid or discipline that solves the problem. David understands and reveals something that is confirmed for us. New Testament, certainly Romans. Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He understands that the problem lies in his nature. This is not just a behavioral pattern. It's not just a habit that he has developed. He has a fundamental problem in being rebellious and selfish. And it's been evident since he, was, was, since he emerged from the womb. That's an important lesson. Lots of lessons today. There are simply no resources in you or me or David to combat the depth of depravity. My will is corrupt. My emotions are distorted and corrupt. And my mind is not as it ought to be. The very core of human personality is twisted by sin. And so it's not just the acts of sin that need cleansing. It's the grip of sin on our lives. And so how is that resolved? Supernatural invention, of course. Intervention, the work of the Spirit of God. But you have a responsibility as I do. By believing God. You and I must humbly believe God, that God will accept and forgive you. Look at verse 16 and 17. You will not delight in sacrifice. Well, I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Now, do you see what he's doing here? David has come to understand, Lord, I can do things. I can do religious ritual and ceremony, but you know what? It doesn't solve my problem. I don't have the resources, I don't even have the religious resource to do what needs to be done to solve my guilt before you as God. 
But what is the solution? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Verse 17, a broken and contrite heart, a God you will not despise. Humble repentance. Why doesn't God despise a broken and contrite heart? It is because it's the broken and contrite heart that understands the inability and the insufficiency and the inadequacy that we have in and of ourselves to come before God and be forgiven. But David learned something about the character of God, not only the holiness of God, not only the the righteousness of God, but he goes on to speak, and I'm going back to the first verse. Oh God, have mercy on me, oh God. This God who is gracious and kind, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Lord, there's nothing I can do here, but I come before you as a beggar. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So, the tenderness of God, believing in this, trusting in the love and the compassion, the feelings of a father for his child. David begins to understand this again. His confidence lies in who God is. Nothing in my hands I bring to your cross. I cling, we would say, those of us looking from a New Testament perspective. God could justly banish and condemn David from his presence and remove his Holy Spirit from him. But David believed and trusted in the unfailing love and compassion in the heart of God, even for him. Folk, you have to believe that too. I have to believe that too. The provision God has made, God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. There's the demonstration. There's there's the physical evidence, the historical event that shows us something of the steadfast love of God towards undeserving sinners. The blood of Jesus on the cross of Calvary, atoning for humble, repentant sinners. Do you believe that? For yourself? Wonderful free gift from God. Got to seek it, but on our knees. And so as I conclude this message this morning, in this world seemingly gone mad, Central Baptist Church, we are not going to go with the flow of the world. There are lifestyle choices being made at the moment that are leading people into condemnation and judgment. And sadly, they will stand before God and be eternally condemned. Isn't that terrible? Isn't that terrible? We sin, so we know better than anybody else. But when we sin, we understand that our sin matters. Our lifestyle choices matter to God. What you decide to do in response to the impulses of your sexual desires matters to God. But wonderfully, liberty, if we confess our sins, but we're also sinners, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. 
from all unrighteousness. And Lord, please help us. We live in a difficult world. The temptations abound. And so often, Lord, we are led down paths of unrighteousness and, and, and together praying this for us as a body, but praying for us as individuals, praying for myself. Oh Lord, please may we be a people that do not grieve your spirit. Help us to be filled with your spirit day by day, even though we've been believers for some of us 50, 60 years. And may you be exalted, may you be praised, and may we walk in the joy of the Lord, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.